This is the first week we've put names in bulletin, so you'll know who's uh, leading you this, this morning. And uh, today is the first time there's an exception. This <laughs> Davey is taking Jack off to Storykeeper, so um, I'm Bob and I'm covering for him. But we, our word for today is from Psalm 139, starting at verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And then moving to verse 13. For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth be useful to your people and to you, and may they bring you glory and honor. Help us to understand, help us to believe, and help us to be changed by looking to your word, and may your spirit meet with us. We pray in Christ's name, amen. One of my uh, most important mentors, Pedro Govantes, um, if you ever sit under one pastor's preaching for a while, you sa- you'll start to notice that often they tend to get one message that they can do a thousand ways, and Pedro's message in a thousand ways was always community, community, to be seen and to be known, to be connected together in community. And he was the one who taught me that humanity's greatest need is often and usually their greatest fear. People's greatest need is often our, also our greatest fear. And that was to be seen, to be known, and to trust that they are still loved to be seen and to be known and to be loved. It is our greatest need is what it means to be human, is that we are born into relationships, how we relate to the world in I-thou relationships. We are not I-it relationships where it's all about me and everything else is just an object. It's I-thou where we have a connection to those around us, whether it be a person or even a place. Some of you have been to this church for a long time. You feel an I-thou relationship to this building, don't you? This building is a character in your life. It's a, it's a being that you interact with. Maybe it's your home. I drive almost every day that I come down here, I drive through Philadelphia. And so for me, it's downtown Philadelphia, Center City, and then the South Philly and the stadiums. It's all part of a character in my life that feels a little more vibrant than just a place. It feels a part of a journey. 
So here we are, we're humans. We are in relationship with everything around us. Our neighbors, our coworkers, our family members, our food, our stores, the weather even. We're in relationship. And so our desire is that we might be seen and might be seen for who we are. Isn't that every 12 to 18-year-old's biggest dream is to just be seen for who they are? They just express it a little bit differently, but I don't think we change. I think as we get older, we just become a little more sophisticated about how we show it until we hit a certain age where we no longer care about anything and we just show whatever we think. But that's a different stage, and that's for Florida. So here we have a beautiful psalm. The lectionary actually took sections, 1 through 6 and 13 through 18. They took the happy portions. We'll cover some of the non-happy portions a little bit later. But they took the happy portions of this psalm that has been wonderfully comforting to many, been been believed and, and treated as beautiful. It's why this psalm is so often quoted. It's why it's so common across posters with kittens and flowers. It's why you can find a mug or almost any other object in some kind of a religious bookstore with some kind of Psalm 139 phrase upon it. You have searched me, O Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit. You know when I rise. You you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going in and going out, my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, Lord, you know it completely. Oh, to be seen, to be known. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. If it ends right there, that's a warm fuzzy, isn't it? It's really nice. It's comforting. Let me read for you 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, or if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day, for the darkness is as light to you. Kind of reads a little differently, doesn't it? Even the construct of your hand is with me, your hand guides me. Oh, that's very pastoral, isn't it? Your hand directs, like the air traffic control people or the nice uh, concierge who says, that way, please. Now, if you grew up in my house, the hand that guided you was the one that was also going to turn the car around and go home. The hand that guided you might also pull off the side of the road and give you a corrective swat. The hand that guides might actually be a little more fearsome than always just the comforting, gentle direction. Search me, O Lord. You know me. See if there's anything wicked and unright in me. You've guided me. You've disciplined me. You've chastised me. You've taught me how to be. Where can I even run from you? Even if I tried to run from you. Even if I go, I love the NIV says the, uh, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths. The depths is Sheol. It's the land of the dead. 
It's Hades. Even if I go down into hell, you are there. You'll find me there. I can't even escape you by going into, the, going into Hades. I guess I, when I was studying about this, somebody highlighted that St. Augustine got it right. That there is nowhere, it's fearsome and terror-filled to, to have God, the hand of God pursuing you, the spirit, the eyes of God overlooking you. And the only way to, to, to absolve and to be, be rid of this fear is to run straight towards him and to find yourself embraced in his grace rather than being running away from him and being chastised and directed it to be brought back. Where can I go? Where can I flee from you? Not the heavens, nor in Sheol, not in the darkness. And even the darkness turns to light. So let's be honest. The idea of somebody knowing us, but like, I don't mean knowing us, but like really knowing us, in certain light, that's comforting. But in another light, it's, it's terrifying. But it's a common feeling in our relationships, isn't it? That we want to be seen. We want to be known. We want to be understood. We want to be accepted as, well, this is me. This is how I was made. This is what I offer. It's our desire for all relationships. If they only knew me, the real me, though, sometimes we hide parts of ourselves, don't we? I call it the, 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 the first date, first dateisms. You know what the first dateisms are when gentlemen make sure they have nice smelling cologne and they trim their nails and they uh, use breast spray and brought gum and they dress nicer than they normally do. I'm not going to ask with a raised set of hands, but I'm just, I, I would wonder if the husbands you know today, ladies, are the same as the ones you knew on the first couple dates. I'm, they may be. They may be still just that. That may be who they are when they wake up. They just wake up and say, hello, may I open the door for you into the kitchen? Maybe. Maybe not. If they only knew me, the real meal, what would they, what, what would they say if they knew the real me? If they, if they knew all of me? We have, it's, it's a common feeling to try to hide in plain sight, isn't it? You go to a social engagement and you just try to think, how can I ride this out and talk to as few people as possible? Those, by the way, are called introverts, which are mostly my friends. I don't know how they accepted me as their only token extrovert, but they did. How can I hide in plain sight? Um, how can I make sure that I, that I let people see the best part, the part that I believe is the acceptable part? So now we get to be the curators of what we believe is our best foot forward and what people ought to like and dislike. We get to be the ones who think we should know how we ought to be seen rather than how we were made. How do I control my, my own, how do I become my own PR agent? How do I curate my image? This is why, in fact, social media is such a boom. It's like billions of dollar industry so that people can curate the image of themselves. And it was interesting because I was a youth director for a lot of years and therefore whatever the kids signed up for, I also signed up for so that I tried to understand it. Now I tell you that because that is my curated answer to why I was an early adopter of all social media. So that you think, oh, what a gifted professional. 
What a gentleman who, what a, what a youth pastor who really cared for the lives of his students, that he would embrace all that nonsense so that he could understand the kids right where they're at. Kind of gets you right here, doesn't it? I mean, it had nothing to do with the fact that I was a social um, extrovert who found a new way to try to engage with people and found that to be like a, a shark in chum-infested water and, and just a feeding frenzy at dusk. It had nothing to do with any of my personal wants or desires or felt needs, no. Social media has got such a grip on us because it does it so well, so easily, with so little cost and effort. And yet, that's why it also holds such a has such a destructive hold on us, such a destructive hold on our teens, especially, I mean, the data is in, especially our teen girls. Instagram has devastating effects on our teen girls and our culture at large. Why? Because we want people to know the real us, the real curated us. So what does it mean to be seen? What does it mean to be known? The psalmist led with crying out to God to test him. Lord, test me. Search me. See my heart and know me. I just want to ask you, do you want the Lord to test you? Do you want the Lord? I mean, some of us feel pretty good about it. Okay, good. I'm happy. Great. I'm glad. Are there days where you think, like, Lord, could, could, could we reschedule for Thursday? Could you let me clean up the house a little first? Could, could you let me go back and confess those sins that I meant to do? I mean, Ken didn't, Ken didn't give us long enough for the confessional prayer time. I had to, you know, there's only like 30 seconds. We need, I needed a couple minutes. Do we want the Lord to test us? Do we always live consistently? Have we always walked in the path of righteousness? Or do we resonate with the great prophet Isaiah, who cried out when he met with the Lord, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Do we resonate with the people who drop before the holiness of God and fall on their face expecting the worst? Do we, do we live a little bit more like Saul, who was chosen by God for great and lofty things, but who let his guard down and turned his heart to a way of idols and became insecure and started protecting his own control and his own power and was found wanting. Or maybe we can even relate to those like, you know, Adam, Eve, who once they discovered the fullness about themselves, they just hid. And they hid from God. And they thought, if I just hide from God, if I just run and hide behind the bushes, if I just grab some big leaves, I will cover up my shame and my nakedness before God. And maybe he won't see me. Maybe, maybe he'll take a walk in the other garden tonight. Maybe he'll just be content playing with the giraffes. Because they're funny, aren't they? Everybody loves a giraffe. No, they were seen by God hiding, shaking. Shaking like a quivering leaf. Big leaf, I guess. Tim Keller wrote... To be loved but not known is comforting, but it's superficial. To be loved but not known, it's comforting but superficial. They love you at work, don't they? Sure, that's nice. But it's not 
that deep love that we're longing for. It's good. It's nice. It's not bad. But it's not complete, is it? Your neighbors love you. Uh, because you can leave them and shut the door. The, the people at the, on the Little League uh, board, or the Little League coaches, they, they think you're great because they only see you an hour or two a week. That's great. And you're on your best, working with kids, looking great. The person at the coffee shop, they get your best. I remember learning from a pastor who was teaching us how to do counseling and marriage counseling and things like that. And he said that there was a couple that came in and their marriage had disintegrated to the point where she said, I just wish he would treat me like he does a Denny's waitress. You can see that illustration stuck in my head 30 years later. Because how sad is that, that we would just be content sometimes in our relationships with that superficial that being loved without being known. Keller continued, to be known and not loved is our greatest fear. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, it's a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. To be fully known and truly loved is what we need more than anything because it liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. When you are truly known, <clears throat> you don't have to put on airs. Now, if you need a group to try to think through, what does that look like? I, I'm, I'm so constantly curating who I look like to, to who's around me. What does that look like? Think back to that childhood group of friends that if you get together again, you would want no cameras allowed. You'd want nothing but a bottle of whatever it is that you all drink and, and you just have a great time laughing till deep into the night. That's that space of being fully known and fully loved where you can just put your hair down and be because you don't have to earn their affection. You don't have to impress them because you can't anyway. And so now you just relax and be. Can I tell you where I would like that to be true of? In, I would say in these four walls, but we have a lot more weird walls in this little nine, ten, whatever we got here. Within this room, within this campus, I would love for this to become the oasis where we become close to truly known and that we become confident that this is where we are truly loved by God and by each other. What we tell the children every week, we want them to know what? That God loves them deeply and will never leave them. And we want them to know that you love them. And so, church, I want you to know this too. God loves you. Test him. Test him to see if he loves you. He does. See the depths. See to what lengths he will go to love you. And then look around and know that while some people in here may irritate you and you may irritate them, and if you are kind of oblivious to that, then never mind. We, we don't know which role you are. But the reality is, look around this room. You belong. You're not only welcome, you belong. I love churches 
because they are not fraternities, they are not sororities, they are not country clubs. They are not a place where we select you based on what you bring to the table, but they are a place where you come, you come and you are welcome because God called you among us. So I hope that you have the courage to help make this space a place where you are known and you are loved and you are confident, where you no longer need to work under pretense, where you are humbled out of your self-righteousness. You know, the, the First Presbyterian Church of I'm doing fine. Now, granted, there's time and a place to unload all that's not fine, but let us be the place where we carry one another's burdens. Let us be the place where we are honest in confession with one another. In Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together, one of my seminal works that it's just like, I try not to quote it too much because I want to quote it all the time. In his chapter on communion, on confession, he states that it's easier to pray to you and God privately and confess your sins than it is to go to another brother or sister in Christ and look them in the eye and say, I have sinned, and let me tell you how. To look another human, another flesh and blood person and say, I let God down and I sinned. And here is what I did. It's so much easier in the privacy of a prayer closet than it is in the relationship of a fellow sister or brother. But when you do that confession to one another, and when that person responds and is the presence, the hands, and the feet of Jesus in that moment to you, then they look you in the eye and remind you, friend, because of Jesus, he knows and you are forgiven. So whatever guilt you're walking around with, and while there may be consequences in this life for what has been done, know that God knows, and you can walk clear and clean. That is the relationship between confession and confessor. From receiving and together praying to God, Lord, make us clean, forgive us for what was done. And when we start getting those relationships kind of intermixed, and it does not everybody, and we're not in the Catholic Church where you have, as a sacrament, where you have to come up and talk to me. I don't want to know all you. I mean, personally, sometimes I like not knowing everything about you all. And I can guarantee you, you like not knowing everything about me too. But we need some people. We need that interconnected web of transparency, of confession, of integrity, of honesty, of support, that, that kind of love where we are fully known and truly loved that liberates us from being pretentious around each other, from having to impress. It, re it releases us from our false humility and our fake self-righteousness, and it builds us up and fortifies us for everything, every difficulty that life can throw at us. That's assuming Keller was right, and eh, he's pretty good. So what does it mean to be seen and known and loved? I think of the woman at the well. I think of the woman at the well who was doing the hot, difficult chore of gaining, getting water from the well when nobody else was there in the, under the midday heat because she was already rejected by her own town. She was so rejected by her own town that she happened to run into Jesus, and he said, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd ask for living water. And she said, sounds good. Give me some, please. And as you know, if you know the story in John chapter 4, if you don't, Jesus said, well, go get your husband, knowing that she did not have a husband. And she told him that, I don't have a husband. And Jesus, pulling out the whole God thing, 
said, I know you don't. You've had five, and the man you're with now is not your husband. Oh, no. He knows me. You can almost feel that dread wash over her. Oh, he knows me. How does he know? Who told him? Has it gotten to other towns? But then he gave her living water. Not only did he give her living water, he told her that he was the Messiah and that he sent her back to the town. And if you look at the text, look closely in the text. This woman who was rejected by everyone, who thought she was about to be rejected by Jesus, gets to be the one to take the news about Jesus to the town. And at her testimony, her story, hey, I met this guy, I think it's the Messiah. Because let me tell you, half the town believed in the Messiah before meeting him because of her words. She was the healing presence in their lives. It reminds me of the woman crying at Jesus' feet who went against every social norm in society just because she was so overwhelmed with his grace and mercy. It reminds me of Zacchaeus who was up in the tree and got so excited that he climbed down and bounced up down for joy and said, I give back everything that I've stolen and four times the amount so that I obey the law and I'll give half of my earnings, everything to charity because I am just Delight. I'm just in, I just can't believe he sees me. The short little thief was seen. The sinner was welcomed. These are the redemptive stories of God's love of seeing and knowing. Peter's an example, too, of how to be seen, known, and loved. He was called by Christ to follow him. He was taught how to become a fisher of men. He was loved. He was lifted up. He was trained. But he was also brash, and he was arrogant, and he had a lot of words. At times, he should have had a lot of silence. He's a bit foolish at times, and even times fearful. So fearful that when he denied Christ three times, he hid and he ran away. But Jesus saw him. Jesus knew him. Jesus restored him because he loved him. I could go on and on. You know, we could talk about Paul who persecuted and killed people and was there for the eradication of Jesus' people and then now became one of the biggest proclaimers of Christ. We could talk about Matthew who was a traitor to his people, and yet. We could talk about the adulterous woman who was brought by the mob to Jesus' feet to be condemned. We could talk about the paralytic man who was lowered down to Jesus' feet through the, through the, through the ceiling. <coughs> We could talk about the man possessed and chained outside the city who Jesus released and set free. We could talk about the woman, the woman from Luke 7, who lost her son and had no husband and had no security. This woman who by all social norms was nothing. And on their way passing in and out of the city gate, he saw her and he touched her son and rose him from the dead and gave her her son back, gave her her life back. We could talk about the lepers. The lepers, the diseased, the outcast that Jesus touched, then healed. Talk about meeting greatest needs. So in conclusion, I just want you to know that 
in Christ, we are seen, we are known, but not terrified. We are loved. We live in a world where we have to curate our, our, our image. We have to curate our reputation. You can't just trust your neighbor to accept everything, and you can't always trust a coworker, and so on and so forth. But just because we have to live shrewdly in a world that's broken does not mean we have to be so guarded that we protect ourselves at all times, even from the love of God and from the love of his people. And God's love is perfect, but it's not going to be expressed perfectly in this church. So we even have to put on our thick skin a little bit here too because we mess up. Our egos get in the way. Our ideas harm sometimes and we don't mean to. But that's part of the journey where God pulls together. What is it, John? God brings a collection. The church is a gathering of natural born enemies who are called together by the name and presence of Jesus. Something like that. You can see Andrew who quoted somebody else I think it was D.A. Carson. One of the ways that I think about this, that we are seen and known, but not terrified. Um, John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, is what most translations say. Well, Eugene Peterson, the great pastor and theologian, in his translation, transliteration, he, he wrote, The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. What a beautiful picture that is that God came down and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, a one-of-kind glory like the Father, like, like Son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. This is Jesus. This is why we know we are seen and known, but not terrified, because it's Jesus who loves us. Jesus is the high priest, who stands in the gap for us. Hebrews says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet did not sin. So let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our help. In, in our time of need. Friends, let us rest in Jesus. Let us trust that we are seen. We are known. We no longer need pretense. We no longer need self-righteousness. And we are now strengthened and we can withstand any storm that comes our way. Together, let's band together knowing that we are the seen. We are the known. And we are the loved. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At this time, I'd like to invite you to stand, if you're able, to sing a song of great praise to God.